Welcome, everyone, again. Um, I don't know if... Um, I think there probably is a, a sort of mix of, of folks in various different places on this, but I am a... Um, I have, I have become a little bit of a political junkie. Um, sorry about that. Um, I, I don't know if these podcasts will mean anything to you, but especially like the 538 Politics podcast, like deep into the statistics nerddom, I actually don't have enough of a background to really follow it all that well, but I'm absolutely fascinated. Um, I have been caught up in, um, I, I'm sure there are probably some folks here who are like, my, where my main role right now is to tell you, hey, there's an election a week from Tuesday, and some of you, that's like news to you. Um, God bless you. I'm so glad. Um, my life has been dominated for the last several months, or at least parts of it, um, by the fact that there's a midterm election coming up a week from Tuesday. Um, politics has become more and more central. And, and again, one of the sort of the things that the nerds on the 538 podcast, it's like a bunch of statistics nerds who are thinking about politics. One of the things that they've been talking about a ton over the last several months is the ways that politics has become correlated with all kinds of other things in our lives. Um, if you know, um, I mean, many years ago, it was sort of established, if you, if you can count how many Starbucks there are per square mile, then you can guess um, the political affiliation of, like, the people in the area. Um, you can do this with, like, fast food restaurants. Um, and, like, the ratio of, like, Chick-fil-A's to Chipotle, like, will tell you um, how, like, red or blue an area is. Overall, on average, not, of course, telling you anything about any particular person. Um, our, our, our politics aren't just about our policy positions, but sometimes, more and more these days, they sort of line up with our moral positions, our social positions, where we shop, where we eat, where what we drive or refuse to drive, what we buy or refuse to buy. It just, it goes, it goes deep. And it presents this sort of question about um, what are we actually more committed to? It, it, it turns out you can pretty quickly see, like, um, when the, like, who's in the White House uh, turns. It's like, if there was a Republican in the White House, um, then Democrats were like, you know, how's the economy doing? Democrats were like, terribly. The next day, there's a Democrat in the White House, like, then you ask the Democrats, How, how's, how's, how's the economy going? They're like, it's great, as it turns out. It got so much better in like the last 48 hours, um, and, and, and total, total, totally vice versa. Um, if, a, if a political uh, leader from one party comes out and sort of shares a surprising position, at least if like enough of those folks come out, um, it seems that it's less that our positions drive us to our parties, but our parties drive us towards our positions. And it raises all sorts of questions about allegiance, which we're thinking about these days in our sermon series. And um, this week, as we're thinking about allegiance, I, I, I want us to think about citizenship. Um, and I suppose in light of the midterms and our current political environment, um, I think we need to think about allegiance and politics. Now, that's probably making a bunch of you really, um, really nervous or really smug. I don't know. Um, it depends on where you're coming from. Um, either you think, uh, yeah. But I, I, I think there's something that the Lord has for us here. And I think it's not, um, I think it, it, it's, it's not either in the sort of camp of um, uh, uh, God wants you to vote a straight ticket one way or the other, or that God would rather, God sort of like is above it all and would like you to also be a sort of above the political fray. I think God is actually deeply involved in the real things of our lives, um, but the fundamental question for us is where is actually our fundamental allegiance? Are we committed first to God 
um, and, uh, or are we first committed in any number of other ways? But this week, we're going to think about, are we first and foremost um, uh, in our, uh, have allegiance to our political identities? And if so, I think the Lord has uh, some things to ask us about. Uh, so I'm going I'm to pray um, uh, that the Holy Spirit would be here as we um, consider these questions together. Holy Spirit, we, in this place, in this community, we want you to be at the center of who we are, who we are as a community, who we are as individuals. And we have, um, many of us, in many different kinds of ways, um, we have uh, perhaps even trepidation about what it means to think about who you are and um, what, what ought to happen in the realm of politics. Spirit, I just pray that you would um, calm us enough to hear from you, to hear what you might have to say to each one of us, even if that is um, sort of just tuned just for us this afternoon. So come and have your way. Speak to us. Your servants, we, 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 we were listening. Amen. Oh, yeah, those are some slides. That's making you nervous. All right, we're going to keep going. All right. We're going to um, uh, look through a story in 1 Kings 12. And I'll just, I'll, I'll start reading this to you. Uh, Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam. I'll, I'll give you some context in a moment. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke that he placed on us, and we will serve you. So Jeroboam um, is, uh, uh, is, is, not, is not the king. Um, he's been um, uh, sort of... Uh, He's been elsewhere. He has returned to Israel, and he brings up a sort of concern of the people for the new king, Rehoboam, um, the son of Solomon. Um, and, uh, and the concern is, there, there's concern about sort of like how, um, what kind of labor has been demanded um, and how this ought to go sort of in the new administration. And so Jeroboam um, comes representing Israel, what will come, what used to be the name for the whole thing, and now is about to become the name just for the northern part. Again, we'll get to that in a moment. But he comes sort of bringing a grievance, a concern of the people to the new king. A policy question. How, how, how are we going to, what's, what's going to be the sort of posture of the king and the king's sort of administration um, towards the people? And Rehoboam takes this uh, question seriously, and he sits down and takes counsel with the older men who had attended his father Solomon while he was still alive. That's a good thing. Solomon has reputation for wisdom. He sits down and he talks with the older folks who had advised Solomon. And those folk answer him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he disregarded the advice that the older men gave him and consulted with the young men who had grown up with him and now attended him. He turns to his posse. The young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you should say to this people who spoke to you, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. 
Here's a freebie today. Here's a freebie. If you're looking to discern, like, the Lord's will in your life, probably don't go with the counsel that begins with a sort of, like, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a dig against your father's genitals. That's just, that's just a freebie. Um, but, um, you know, that's, uh, you didn't know that you were going to hear that in church today. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's where these, that's the level that these guys are at, all right? It's like, hey, this is about proving your manhood. And if you want to prove your manhood, you should say, now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions, so Rehoboam, in sort of coming into the kingship and coming into this sort of new um, uh, position of leadership in his life, makes a classic mistake, looking for advisors who will tell him what he wants to hear rather than advisors who will help him see what he doesn't yet understand. He listens, as I said, to his posse rather than his elders. He rejects Jeroboam's request on behalf of the people that he lightened the burden of labor. And so the kingdom is divided. I, now, I don't know why these guys look straight out of like He-Man and the masters of the universe. Um, but honestly, it was like a pretty good map. It like picks out a couple places. Sorry about that. Um, but anyway, um, but, this, but this, is, this is the situation. Um, Jeroboam leading Israel in the north. Rehoboam leading Judah in the south. And I mean, let's get it straight from the beginning. When it comes to the policy question, the political question um, that sort of launches this whole thing, I think it's pretty clear that Jeroboam gets it right. Rehoboam is extracting labor um, and, and it seems like, in as much as the complaint's coming from the north, he's maybe even extracting labor based on something like ethnic ideology. We have some experience with this in the United States. Jeroboam, I think, is, like, is, is, is in the right. And there are reasons that we, 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 we I think, uh, we're supposed to think that as we go along. We could go so far as to see this as a second Exodus narrative. In this case, Israel is being delivered out of the hands of Judah. Rehoboam is oppressing the people of God, and Jeroboam goes to demand the abuse stop. Instead, like, uh, instead of doing that, uh, like Pharaoh, Rehoboam doubles down. and Jeroboam leads his people out of oppression. Now consider for a moment how crazy it is that this is in the Bible, right? Within two generations, the house of David is described in its own scriptures as being like the great oppressors, the great enemies of the people, Egypt. Sometimes even those of us who would dare to count ourselves among the people of God may find that God is opposed, even violently opposed, to our violent opposition to God. Uh-oh, indeed, right? And that is, I take it, is actually a moment of grace. Grace certainly for those who suffer at the hands of our opposition to God's good purposes, those who suffer under our oppression, but it's also grace for those of us who oppose God's good purposes. God comes and speaks a no to our enmity, and that no to enmity is just the other side of God's yes to to friendship with us, but sometimes we see the no first. Sometimes we feel it more deeply. Sometimes it turns into 
a civil war. And Rehoboam is hearing the no loud and clear. And the civil war that Rehoboam faces is God's opposition to Rehoboam's opposition to God. And if he is shocked to hear it, if he thought he was exempt from that sort of opposition, he has a lot to learn about God, as do we. Just because he is the king of Israel, king over the people of God, the grandson of King David himself, whose house God promised would last forever, just because Rehoboam is the guy does not mean he can assume that God is on his side. In this moment, he is more like Pharaoh than he is like the Lord's anointed. He's witnessing a second exodus, and he is not playing the part that he expected to play. But it goes on, and and Jeroboam up in the north, Jeroboam gets to thinking. It says, Jeroboam said to himself, well, let's get this up. Jeroboam said to himself, now, the kingdom may well revert to the house of David. If this people continues to go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, the heart of this people will turn again to their master, King Rehoboam of Judah, and they will kill me and return to King Rehoboam of Judah. It's so hard. I wish this story, these two guys had like more different of names, all right? But, and it's especially hard because Jeroboam is not in Judah. It's the other way around. All right, so just to make sure we're following, right? So this is the king in the north who's thinking, all right, all right, this is good. We needed to separate out from, from this uh, oppressive regime down in Jerusalem. Um, this is good. The people have come, have sort of followed along. They're with me. We're setting up a sort of free state of Israel up in the north against the oppression of what's going on in the south. But there's a rub. We still, we still go to worship in Jerusalem. And if my people have to go down to Judah every year, down to Jerusalem, well, they say up because it's uphill, but I'm thinking on the map south. If, if they have to go to Jerusalem to, to, um, to, to worship, oh, dang it, their, their political allegiance, it's going to be weak, they're going to turn on me, and you can't have two kings, one's going to end up dead, that'll be me. So the free state of Israel is in danger so long as Israelites have to go worship in Judah. The worship of the God of Israel is a threat to the liberation of the God of Israel as Jeroboam sees it. Maybe that's not as important to him, though, as the fact that, of course, it's also the threat, uh, the worship in Jerusalem is a threat to Jeroboam's life. So Jeroboam concocts a Solution, he too takes counsel. We don't get as detailed an account of who comes up with this great idea. But he, king, king takes counsel, this is the king of the north, and made two calves of gold. He said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So that took a quick turn, right? <laughs> Um, thought like, oh, this is like the good guy. Like he's he's like fighting on the side of the people. He's um, standing up to uh, this this sort of heavy yoke that has been put upon them. But like first idea, once there's some insecurity, the first idea that come that he comes up with is is golden is a golden calf. 
And I love that it's not just one golden calf, right? Like, you got to double down. It's two golden calves. Um, and part of this is because, like, Israel's a really big place, so it'd be kind of convenient to have two different temples that people could go and worship at. Um, but, like, I mean, you got to think, like, for, like, a king of Israel, like, how do you, like, how do you miss that, right? Like, I mean, that should ring a bell, <laughs> right? Like, like a golden calf, um, like, how does that seem like a good idea? And I mean, and in case you haven't read Exodus recently, I mean, this is like verbatim. I mean, you know, here are your gods, um, or slightly different from Aaron. These are your gods, uh, O Israel, um, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I mean, this is, this is, this is identical. And for what it's worth, um, I don't think Aaron, who's the speaker in Exodus, or Jeroboam actually think that they're inviting the people to worship different gods or a different god. Um, we can get into this, but I mean, but they, they say like, no, 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 like, do you know what this, what this image is? This is the god who brought you out of, uh, out, out of Egypt. That's how you know who the god of Israel is. Um, he doesn't think that, that, I don't think Jeroboam thinks he's inviting these folks to worship a different god. Golden calf worship is, in his mind, as I think it was for Aaron and the people's minds back in Exodus, worship of the one true God. But worship of the one true God made more tangible, updated for the times, strong enough to resist the tyrant, in this case, the tyrant of Judah, mighty enough to save and, you know, I mean, on top of that, like, more portable, more virile, right? Like, more like the, gold, the golden bull of our day, right? That, like, reigns over Wall Street. Like, more malleable for our own needs, more respectful of the demands of our political moment. And my sense is that it would not be hard for us to come up with a few golden calves that we have constructed Ways that we are inclined to reimagine God so that God better fits within our political boxes. Whether we are inclined to imagine a God whose concern for life ends after a baby is born. Or whether we're inclined to imagine a God whose concern for the poor and the oppressed doesn't begin until birth. Whether we're inclined to restrict love of enemy to those we see as oppressed, but never, never to the oppressors, for what truly righteous God would command us to love oppressors, or if we're inclined to use God's command to love even the oppressor to get us out of having to follow Jesus in proclaiming release to the captive and setting the oppressed free. There are all kinds of ways that we are inclined to imagine God so that God is more easily recruited into our political projects. And whenever we give in to this impulse, we demonstrate that our allegiance is not to God, but rather to our political identity. In short, we show ourselves to be idolaters. At times, we're even willing to build golden calves, um, as if that doesn't give us away. So at this point in, 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 in 1 Kings 12, um, we have Rehoboam the oppressor and Jeroboam the idolater. And one begins to wonder, whose side is God on? It's a mess. 
And I'll tell you, if you go on and you read the next chapter, it only gets worse. There, there's like these two prophets, one from the north, one from the south, they contend with one another, obeying God, disobeying God, deceiving and being deceived. The Judean prophet obediently delivers a word of the Lord against the worship of the golden calves. That's good. But then the Israelite prophet convinces the Judean prophet to disobey God's command to him not to eat or drink while he's in Israel, delivering that word against the, against the golden calves. Then the Israelite prophet dies as a consequence of disobeying God. Just like, I mean, he was like deceived by like another, anyway. Um, but then when, when the Israelite prophet finds out that the Judean prophet has been like, has been killed then the Israelite prophet like weeps for him, brings him home on his donkey. If you're thinking about the Good Samaritan, you should, because this is all happening in Samaria. Um, he, he puts him on his own donkey and he brings him back to his house and he has him buried in his own tomb and tells his sons, bury me with him. I don't know what to tell you to make out of all of that, except that it's like, a, it is a mess. Whose side is God on? It's, imposs- it's impossible to tell. And maybe the point is that we, once we ask whose side God is on, we are asking the wrong question. Our nation, of course, has a long history of going the wrong way once we start imagining our si- ourselves as those who have God on our side. Bob Dylan wrote about this um, in this song, um, With God on Our Side. He was 22 when he wrote this song, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I feel some sort of way about that. Um, one, of the, one of the verses, oh, the history books tell it, they tell it so well, the cavalry's charged, the Indians fell, the cavalry's charged, the Indians died. Oh, the country was young with God on its side. And he goes on and tells the story of war after war after war in which most in this country have had every confidence that God was on our side. Late in the song, he finally drops this line, and you never ask questions when God's on your side. That's not good. (laughs) It makes a huge difference when you assume that God is on your side versus when you ask whether you are on God's side. Abraham Lincoln famously replied to a military officer who asked him if God was on the Union's side. He said, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always in the right. This man was fighting a war to, among other things, end slavery in this country. And he was not willing to just say like, yeah, I know, I know, God's on our side. What is that about? I take it in part, in this response, Lincoln is invoking a principle straight out of Scripture from the first Exodus. We get this, that's a little bit after the Exodus, but as the Israelites are sort of taking possession of the land of Canaan, having been led out of, 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 of Egypt. This is right before the conquest of Jericho. So once when Joshua was by Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. 
Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you one of us or one of our adversaries? And he replied, Neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And he said to him, What do you command your servant, my Lord? At first, Joshua's question is exactly Rehoboam's and Jeroboam's and perhaps ours. Are you, he says to the messenger of the Lord, are you one of us or are you one of our adversaries? Whose side are you on, God? And the angel of the Lord answers, neither. Neither. Again, if there were ever a clear moment, Israel is taking possession of Canaan as God promised Abraham and Moses. But even in this moment, the messenger of God refuses, refuses to, 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 to sort of slot himself in. God refuses to be on either side. And Joshua accepts this. He recognizes God's absolute unwillingness to be recruited into our political projects, even political projects that we believe, even political projects that we rightly believe God has led us into. That's probably worth saying again, right? God is unwilling to be recruited into our political projects, even political projects that we rightly believe God has led us into. Because God doesn't work for us. If God has led us into political action, then we will have to allow God to lead us through political action. And that means recognizing every step of the way the Lord's radical independence of our own political projects. And asking at every step, Lord, where are you leading? We see the fruit, right, in Josh, of Joshua's acceptance of this sort of stance of the Lord, this refusal of the Lord to just sign up to be in, in Joshua's army, right? And when, 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 when Joshua takes this stance, he says, what do you command of your servant, my Lord? That's a question neither Rehoboam or Jeroboam is asking. And it's a question I fear for myself um, I don't know how many, how many times I'm asking that question when it comes to my most confident political convictions. I think one of the most important um, theological um, documents in this nation's history actually is, uh, is Lincoln's um, second inaugural address. Um, uh, the situation is uh, Abraham Lincoln has been reelected in the middle of the Civil War, um, and he gives a very, very short speech um, uh, in, in, in the midst uh, of the war, uh, beginning his, his second term. Apologies, I'm, I, I wanna put this up in his own hand just so we can connect uh, his words here. Both, speaking of the Union and the Confederacy, read the same Bible. Both pray to the same God and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should choose to dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing 
their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. He goes on. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. Like it says, judge not that we may not be judged. I don't know about you, but again, it's just one of those moments like, come on, I think you can judge. And frankly, with the line that he gave, like he did, he did judge, right? Like it's kind of hard to imagine that you might like pray to a just God um, on the South's cause. But Lincoln has this conviction that, deter- that discerning the will of God amidst the fog of war, discerning God's will in the midst of political contention, maintaining one's allegiance to God, assuring that one's political allegiance does not outstrip one's allegiance to God, all of those things require an odd humility. Even to the extent that one reserves judgment while taking decisive action for the sake of, one, of what you believe to be right. You reserve judgment even while taking decisive action for the sake of what you believe to be right. Conceding all the while that you cannot be sure, ought not be sure, that God is on your side, but rather hoping nevertheless that we might be found in the final accounting to have striven on God's side. Because remember, this is a man fighting a war, fighting a war and admitting he can't finally judge. Conceding that even if he is right, his right cause is in the wrong, coming as it does in the flow of 250 years of oppression and national sin. Well aware that the nation he leads may be experiencing what it is to find God acting in violent opposition to one's own violent opposition to God. And that the most obedient way forward that one can muster may still involve pain and suffering and even death. In such moments, as he says, what else can one say but to agree with the psalmist that the Lord's judgments are true and righteous altogether, and that our judgments are not? Now, that could sound like fatalism, but again, in the mouth of a man prosecuting a war for the sake of what he believes to be right, I take that that's anything but fatalism. It's actually the height of courage paired with the very height of theological humility. And I I take it that so often, perhaps particularly when it comes to politics, we feel that we have to choose courage to act, but perhaps 
unwisely because, well, we had to act. It was urgent. Or humility to admit what we don't know, but as a result, never act. The first is an especially American sort of political trope almost, the sort of cowboy who jumps into actions, consequences be damned, uh, ready, fire, aim, agree or disagree, but at least, but at least he's decisive. And I say he because it's usually a he. The second figure is a figure perhaps most beloved by, uh, I think, by, like in the academy, <laughs> The careful thinker who has a critique at every turn, but for just that reason never acts. Because who could take action given all the complexities involved? It's paralysis by analysis. It's a theological version of that that becomes an argument for uh, it's called the quietism, sort of argument against engaging in the world and God's work in it. I think we have to say no to both of these. And the way God calls us to is the way of humility and courage, the humility to admit what we don't know while nevertheless daring to act boldly in line with God's purposes so far as we can discern them. Acting, as Lincoln says, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. To live life with a living God requires more humility and more courage and more of each together than we could ever imagine. This is the way of Joshua, who in a moment of desperately hoping that the Lord is on his side, when the Lord's messenger refuses to declare, bows down and says, what, do you, what would you have me do? Several years ago, um, preaching and talking about the Exodus today um, takes me back. Several years ago, I had um, taken a sabbatical from, from preaching and was coming back. And as I was coming back into preaching, we were preaching through the Exodus. And um, I think I was thinking a lot about politics. It was, the, it was like January, February of 2015. And... Um, I remember preaching a, a series of sermons that felt, um, or a couple of sermons uh, in, in a series that, that I felt really, I felt really, really good about. I felt, felt like I was sort of working out my sort of political theology, like in, in front of a, a bunch of folks who seemed to be sort of liking what I was laying down. I remember like standing, uh, hearing, talking to someone afterwards who had like founded a local nonprofit and sort of, he was like, Oh man, like Matt, like that's like that's like the sort of preaching we haven't heard in these parts since you know, and then name some famous Yale chaplain. And I was like, yeah, I'm feeling it. I feel it. Like this is it. I'm doing the thing. And I don't disavow like most of what I said in those talks. I'm just like I don't like take it back. But not long not long after that, I was in a uh, classroom. It wasn't until preparing for this talk that I sort of put these two moments together. But not long after that, I was in a classroom at Yale, and I was, um, we, were, we were, as uh, I often do at the end of the semester, um, had students sort of reading their papers, their final papers um, together, and sort of giving, giving feedback, redoing that together as a whole seminar. 
and it was a it was a first year seminar. So all all of these students are you know writing their first you know one of their first papers at Yale, and um, with this you know sort of political clarity that I felt that I had, I I I saw in one of my students, and again for what it's worth, still stand by it. I think I was right. I saw I saw in one of these student papers, I think just like a a real. I don't want to get too specific about it, but I, I, just a real like, like a real error, like a like a morally, ethically like problematic um, sort of. Um, it wasn't just like a string in the paper. It was like the whole paper. And we were discussing together as a group, and with my sort of moral, with my political moral clarity, I I laid out in total detail what I thought was going on in this in this student in this student's paper. And you could just see it just, it just crushed her. I, it was, um, it was like wholly like inappropriate, like use of like my stance as an instructor inside of a classroom. It was, I had to go back and like talk to the student afterwards. Um, it was like, uh, I mean, the Lord just like convicted me like in the moment and then like again and again and again, <laughs> like over like the days afterwards. I sought the student out, tried to reconcile. I, there's so much power imbalance. I, I don't know um, whether she really sort of felt that I had, I had uh, that I could apologize to what I had done. There's, there's a moment. It sort of can't be taken back. I'm inclined in, in moments like this to often tell that, that stories like that that are about where we need more humility, where having that sort of posture of saying, well, I, I think I see this, I, th I think I see this clearly, but, um, but Lord, that doesn't end with, that doesn't mean I don't have to ask you, like, what should I do and how should I interact in this situation, right? That was, I think that was the thing. I, like, missed that step. It was like, all right, I see clearly here now I think the Lord has endorsed these general ideas. I will now inflict them upon the world with total freedom. Not asking, like, Lord, okay, Lord, no, no, no. Okay, I think there's some, clear, some clarity here. What does it look like to actually walk that out? But if I'm honest, um, of the sort of two figures of which one I'm more likely to be, I'm much less likely to be that cowboy than I am the, like, analysis by paralysis. Like, for the sake of humility, I won't act. And I think the Lord, the Lord wants to invite us out of those, of those, two, um, those two poles into this other place, full of humility, yes, but also full of courage. And like I said, not sort of one at the cost of the other, but both like in greater and greater abundance as we learn what it is to just say like, okay, Lord, what would you have me do? Walking forward, holding with open hands, even the even the holding with open hands, even the convictions that we are are walking out courageously, even as we walk out courageously, asking those questions, and even as we have those questions, nevertheless daring to walk and act courageously. I see that happening in this community. I'm trying to learn. I'm really grateful for those who are leading us um, in, uh, in in what the Lord is asking us to do, and I see this sort of courageous and humble sort of action happening in our community. And I have to say, I am 
I am, I, am, uh, I am a student of what is happening. I want to learn more from what God is doing in our midst. So look, a few, uh, a few, uh, a few steps that we might take now. Uh, one question and sort of like two invitations. Question is, first question is just like, who are you listening to? Like, what's your uh, sort of like diet of like counsel these days? Like, where are you, who are you, who you're listening to? Who are you getting input from? Are you willing to listen to folks who tell you things that you don't like to hear? Or do you tend to surround yourself with folks from, uh, you know, from, you know, maybe folks from way back when who you know will tell you exactly what you want to hear? I think as a, like a relatively young church, it's also just worth like being straightforward about this. Like, are, do you have elders that you listen, like people like older than you, <laughs> that you, that you seek out, that you listen to? And second, um, I think there's an invitation today that we might um, ask God for humility. Ask God for God's sort of humility, not a sort of humility that's like, a, oh, I don't know, right? Um, or, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I have no warrant to take courageous action in the world. No, God's sort of humility. It says, I will, uh, like, in fact, like part of my humility is taking such bold, such bold uh, steps for the sake of the, of the kingdom and, and together with God that how could I take those steps except in humility because the thing that I'm doing is so daring that it's obviously beyond me, right? That's, right, God's, God's humility, Eventually, Joshua, like, leads a group of people to, like, march around a city <laughs> multiple times, like, blowing trumpets and, like, not laying siege to it because he believes. <laughs> like, that, is, that is humility to the point of humiliation, potentially, right? Right? But that's, that's not humility of, like, oh, like, I don't know, like, I'll just wait and see. No, it's, like, humility is going to, like, take some steps um, and, and not because it's all been worked out and ahead of time, but because it's what the Lord's asked you to do. And that goes together with this, with the last one you can imagine. Um, ask God for courage. And again, God's courage, not the ready, fire, aim sort of courage. But real, but real courage, I mean, stepping out with what God has called, called you to do, holding with open hands even the convictions uh, for the sake of which you take decisive action. Ready to repent, ready to seek reconciliation, ready to... Um, ready to learn even as you take courageous action um, in the directions that the Lord is, is leading you to. And we've got the worship team up here and um, uh, Josh pointed in another direction. Who's bringing, who's awesome, Jesse. Um, We'll hear, some, we'll hear some prophetic words in just a moment, but I want us all to, if you would, if you're able, if you'd stand up. I think, I think it's what the Lord especially wants to do here in this place, and we're all in different places, so this may not 
this may not um, line up 100% with every person in the room, but I think what the Lord especially wants to do for us as a community and for, for individuals in this community, I think the weight of it sort of falls on the side of, of imparting courage. Um, it may be that, that, that some, of, some of you are, are hearing like courage is like a really scary idea <laughs> like a, because you've just, you've just seen bad versions of it, irresponsible versions of it, sort of. Um, so there's sort of, it takes courage to step out courageously, right? It takes courage even to ask God for God's courage. Um, but if you, if you be willing, um, I, and I invite you to just open your hands like you're going to receive a gift. And I just want to, we'll, we'll pray for both God's humility and God's courage, but especially God's courage. I think the two of them, if, you, if we really know what God's version of humility is, then like courage is built in. If we really know what courage is, then humility is built in from God's point of view. So Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would pour out your humility and your courage on this community. Blocks of fear of what courage has looked like, maybe especially in the, in the environment of politics or especially at the intersection of politics and religion, wherever those might be, Lord, as legitimate as those might be, would you just hold them for us and impart your vision of what those things look like, impart your humility, impart your courage in this place that you would set us free to walk boldly in the ways that you, ha- you would have us uh, participate in the, in the mission and the calling of Jesus in our city, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. Lord, would you give us courage as people filled with your Holy Spirit to move and act for the sake of the world that you so love? Would you give us imagination of how to do that even or especially in this, in this fraught context of politics and public life.